0: Hello and welcome to the Dental Elements
1: Podcast. Today we have a very special guest with us, Yvonne Posey. Yvonne is the founder of WeRiseWellness.com and is a registered dental hygienist with over 20 years of experience. Yvonne
0: coaches providers to develop best practices and environments that support trauma-informed healthcare and resilience cultivation. Yvonne is committed to bridging the gap between those impacted by complex trauma and the practitioners who provide healthcare for them. So sit back and relax, grab your favorite beverage because your show is heading this way now. today we have Yvonne Posey. Is that how you say your last name?
2: That's correct.
0: Great. And April is joining us today as well. We get her two, two times in a
2: row. Yay. Woo. Woo.
0: So Yvonne, I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us your
1: story. My name is Yvonne Posey. I am a dental hygienist. I've been a dental hygienist for 23 years. Um, before my experience in dental hygiene, I worked in um, human services. So I I worked with um, school-age parents who come with lots of challenges, um, usually in multiples. And it was a really rewarding work. But in Wisconsin, in the middle 90s, a bunch of stuff changed as regards service provision. And I worked for an organization that got all of their money through grant funding. Every penny was grant funding. And a huge chunk of that was federal funding. And when the, that kind of service provision changed in Wisconsin, all like two thirds of our budget got sucked into that new programming. Um, and 80 of us caseworkers or so across the state, we all lost our jobs at the same time. And the next job offer that came was from the County for more hours, less pay, worse benefits and more travel and a heavier caseload. And I just felt like that was too backward. I'd spent seven years in the field, and I did not want to. And we were right at the cusp of when it was gonna—you're gonna need a master's degree in order to keep um, working in the field. And I wasn't really prepared to pay fifteen thousand dollars to go back to school with no guarantee that I would be able to recoup that money and in, in earn wage earnings. So I started to do some research about what was going to be the next chapter of my life, and I ran into a wonderful librarian at my local technical college. It was the closest place that had a good big library that had a lot of reference material because I lived kind of in a rural area at the time. And I explained to her what I was doing. I was there doing some career research. She pointed me in the right direction in the stacks to find the books that I was looking for, and when I was all done, I thanked her and she said, "So what what did you find?" And um I had kind of settled on four things I was interested in nursing, Physical therapy, occupational therapy, and dental hygiene. Well, my local technical college had some version of all of those. Um, but three of the four had huge long wait lists, and dental hygiene had just they had just started a program. And I was like, I don't want to wait five years for clinicals for those other things. I'm ready to go as soon as possible because I knew the pink slip was coming. It hadn't come yet, but it was months in the offing and I needed to make some decisions. I had a young family, and so I applied for the hygiene program and got waitlisted, but the and it was a tiny program. They only took six students a year. It was itty yeah itty bitty. Wow, that and is small. Cool. So I was nine on the waitlist, nine ninth in the ninth position for those six spots. But the three people ahead of me had circumstances where they couldn't start, so I got in right away. I applied in October, got waitlisted in February, and got accepted in April and started in August. So. And then my layoff came in November. So I worked part-time and went to school full-time essentially. And then my layoff came. And so then um, I determined, again, because I had a young family and my husband was supporting all three of us. And so I was like, I need to get done as quick as I can. So I had one semester of 17 credits, one semester of 18 credits, and a summer session of nine credits in order to squeeze everything into the two years that the technical program was. Fortunately, they took some of my bachelor's stuff, but yeah, all of the other stuff was like, get it done in two years. So got done and got a job actually before I took my licensure exam and I have been in love with dental hygiene ever since.
0: And do you still love it today?
1: I still love it today. I still love the clinical side today. Um, And almost right away, I was always the hygienist who got the freaky scared patients. I think having that social work background informed my ability to understand what was happening on some level, mostly intuitively at that time. And over time, I could convert those patients. And then um, in the early 2000s, I ran across some research that had been done right around the same time that I got laid off from my job and started school around what's called the science of safe relationship. A medical doctor's graduate students were looking at the prevalence of childhood trauma and how that impacts the neurobiology of the person who's who's experienced that trauma. And I realized the same things that were common in those patients that either had childhood trauma or some kind of traumatic event or multiple traumatic events in their lives were the same ways that my anxious patients were presenting. And then um, I also, uh, like some other research came out around the same time um, that was looking at how, like how frequent do adults have some history of complex trauma? Um, And that research was, it was on a national level. And then every single state after that repeated their version of a study in the States and, and corroborate what the national study brought out. That national study had a, a sample size of about not quite 18,000 participants in this study. Um, I, my, I wrongly assume, well, they must have gone to like underserved communities or people who were marginalized and, and gathered this information. That was incorrect. Um, 70% of the participants were college educated and of European backgrounds. So Caucasian. What they found was 61% of men and 51% of women had at least one experience with a childhood trauma. 80% of that group that reported one had at least one more. Women in that sample group were 50% more likely to have five or more. So women, we tend to look at trauma a little differently. Those half of those women said, oh yeah, when first asked, yeah, I've had at least one. But then as they went through the questionnaire, they found out that half of half at least uh, 50% um, women are 50% more likely to have at least five or more. And when we have four or more, that study showed higher incidence of um, autoimmune disorders, things like diabetes, heart disease, chronic breathing diseases, anxiety, depression, lower ability to earn wages, difficulty in relationships, um, all because those people had been exposed to complex trauma. And again, my patients exhibited some of the same medical history things and physical presentation that the study showed that those individuals who've been exposed to trauma had. So, like, all of this stuff started to mix together in my head. And I was like, okay, that's nice, but what do I do with that knowledge? How do I make practical applications so that the next time I go into the clinic, I can do things a little differently to shorten the time it takes to convert an anxious patient to someone who can handle. Um, dental treatment. So, again, more research, more digging, and I basically came up with a system to evaluate medical histories. Look at people when they physically present, when I first see them in the waiting room for the first time, we're strangers. You stand up in the waiting room after I call your name and I watch what happens to your body. And based on what happens when I see you in the waiting room, I now know whether or not you are in a healthy autonomic nervous system state, a healthy, um, Uh, you know, where are you on the ladder of an activated nervous system? And then now I know what to do as we head back to the treatment room and as we engage um, in that treatment relationship to make you feel safe so you can get through your treatment. Wow.
0: That's a lot. That's a lot of uh, good information. So first of all uh, um, I'll go way back to the beginning. (laughs) So with your degree, it's crazy that you would have to go, in general in society that you have to get such a high degree to work for something that you can't make money at. Like teachers have to get such high degrees and they can't ever make it back. So I don't think that's fair Um, anyway. And then so, and for you to have the foresight of knowing you're going to be laid off and being proactive to get into dental hygiene school and to get into school with only nine spots, that's hard enough. Six spots. I was next on the list. Oh my gosh. Okay. That's right. You're on the wait list. So that is incredible. And then it must be a good school too, to have six students in there to have that, you know, um, that training. Yeah. Um, and then, so, uh, you're talking about being, um, intuitive, knowing if your patients are scared. And I I think that's how I am too. So I don't know how much of that is intuition or body language. You're talking about their, um, like their gait when they're walking into the room. And that's something we yeah. learn in hygiene school too. And I'm sure assisting school um, right away, you could tell their health by their, by their gait. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's body language, intuitive, kind of a combination of all. Of Some of us are yeah. more intuitive naturally, I think. So um, yeah, I agree. That's, that's
2: pretty cool. So I just wanted to um, pretty much re everything you said, <laughs> April. She might have the lawnmower going in the back. Sometimes she has a,
0: uh, somebody shaving her legs for her during the podcast episode. So we have to keep her on mute. And I'm doing a commercial for Diet Coke today. They're our new sponsor. Ah. No, she's getting sorry, choppy. Sorry,
3: ladies, yeah, I keep getting choppy reception. So here I am.
0: <laughs> sorry, usually we're a little so more that's, professional. That's,
3: that's, oh, sorry. <laughs> um So yeah, Yvonne, it's pretty impressive that you're able to merge those two degrees that you have together to
1: start this business. It was quite accidental. You know, it really, it was a matter of like, um, I didn't know I was going to marry the two. You know, at the beginning, I just knew I was changing careers and somehow those skills from that old job that I did, old field that I was in came forward with me. Um, And it wasn't until, you know, maybe, you know, I'd say less than 10 years ago, you know, when I came across, um, you know, that, that really interesting, you know, piece of couple pieces of research that really helped me. Understand why I got what was happening with my patients because I too had you know some history of my own with childhood trauma. I think that sometimes can make you intuitive as well, so you can kind of read people's very subtle cues um, and be able to respond to them one in a way that keeps you safe, but two in a way that you know would potentially like deescalate a negative situation. Because you know sometimes when your anxious patients come in, they're up here. They're like you know ten out of ten and anything you might do could set them off and they could have a really negative reaction. You ever get that person that almost makes you want to cry because they're so um, aggressive or mean when you have to treat them. So, yeah. you know, sometimes, you know, just those subtle cues can help you potentially de-escalate a potentially difficult situation with your patients. And
0: to understand that it's not you,
1: mm-hmm. it's something
0: in their past. And And I love those patients too because I love... I, I mean, I, I'm sad that they feel that way, but I love being able to comfort them and understand, maybe not understand exactly what their issue is, but just letting them know. And sometimes just putting your hand on their shoulder or something that yes. like, comforts them. Yep. And yeah. traumas that could be different. Um, I don't know what your trauma was, but and so you're not just talking about dental trauma. There's just traumas in life. And I don't know, I have a trauma, let's say for Star Trek, sorry, April. And so if I see Spock, I, I just automatically just, I just freak out. I don't know why, I don't, you know, I probably don't want to know why, but things like that are fifties music, some fifties music. And so it might not even be the dentist or it might not be anything, but it Absolutely. might be music playing in the background or something like that. So there's so many different things going on. Do yep. you, um, do you ask your patients or do you just kind of naturally intuitively speak to them and help them through it?
1: So I don't typically ask specifically about, you know, traumatic experiences they've been in, but again, like their body language and their his health history. And, you know, sometimes some of our questionnaires will ask will ask a patient, you know, have you had any negative dental experiences? You know, do you have any, um, is there anything that we can do to make your visit feel more comfortable? And they will, sometimes if you can read between the lines, will reveal something that will tell you that this, this dental setting is triggering for them. Cause think about it. You know, if it's, if it's simply a dental trauma, not just simply, but if you've had a dental trauma laying in the chair in a vulnerable position with a near stranger in an intimate space can be triggering, or like you had mentioned 50s music. What if some music that comes on reminds them of something, you know, a car accident they were in or a grandparent that they'd lost or some other sort of difficult event where they had a hard time bouncing back from. So, you know, that, that position that they're in and what we're doing in an intimate space can bring back those issues, concerns, experiences. And now you've got somebody with an activated nervous system
2: in your chair and you've got to cope with that. Now, have you gone to, do you have an approximate number of offices, you practices you've been in to counsel
3: them or uh, consult with them? to work on speaking with these types of patients?
1: Yeah. So in the last two years, I've essentially, I've worked as a sub um, of somebody that I know had a staffing agency. She brought me on. um, And so now I've been exposed to for the last two years, like literal strangers, not my patients of record, not the patients I'd seen for 13 years to help care for them, you know, through these different circumstances. Um, And so being that I've gotten the opportunity to be in so many different places, uh, now half a dozen offices have asked me to come in um, and teach teach these skills. Um, so it's been really rewarding, not just to work one-on-one with patients, but to really impact providers on a, on a wider scale, because now that more providers know, more patients are going to be positively impacted by knowing these skills. So yeah, just really excited to watch this whole thing blossom um in
0: the industry. Yeah, and it's such an important thing with all of the like the sleep dentistry. And I work for dentists that uses a lot of sedation. Yep. Um because there's so many patients that are nervous. So yep. to have somebody that can that train the team to help the patients. So you, then you could keep some patients too without them to refer them to specialists.
1: Yep. And have That's patients exactly actually right. come
0: through and follow up with
1: treatment. Yeah. Because really specialists those are reactions are drugged up, yeah. Yeah, those specialists tend to have a harder time, you know, because they aren't, you know, it might be a one-off thing that you go for it to a specialist for. They're not a long-term patient of record. And so that kind of dental anxiety tends to be worse in those specialty practices. So again, like you said, if you can work with those patients in your practice, um, that you already have established a, a rapport or a relationship with them, um, that can help them keep from being as activated as easily.
0: Yeah. So do you, so you go into practices and help train teams
1: and then do you yes. do speaking or provide any courses or anything like that? Courses are coming, um, speaking engagements are opening up as well. An office that I was just in not too long ago, he, um, asked me to come. He does a, a local component of the Seattle study club. So I'll be doing some work for him with his Seattle study club. Um, and we're hoping that um, down the road that can branch out into national um, exposure of this topic in other Seattle study club components. So,
0: yeah, that that's
1: fantastic. Yeah.
0: But you don't actually go to Seattle, right?
1: You, no, not, taking, not with COVID. We're close. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So we're yeah, going to have an event they have here. We have taken
1: in- a lot of that online. So yeah, we're going
0: to have an event here in Portland soon. So maybe we can work out something. You can come and come and teach, come in.
1: That enforce. is my favorite part of the country. I would love that.
0: Yeah. Good. We'll have to send you some information when we have all the, some more details
1: for sure. Great. I was
3: going to ask you about your LinkedIn background photo. Look like the gorge here, but where was that? That was Lake Como, Italy. Oh, I was going to say, cause it look, I saw the orange roofs. It's like, Oh, it looks like the gorge, but it's, I see the, the uh, houses. It's it's not, but uh, Yeah. So
1: very my other passion is travel I love 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 to travel me so.
0: too this must have been a rough year last year for you huh
1: yes it was yeah. terrible Yeah. a friend and I have tentatively um, decided to take a trip to she has, she has a daughter who used to live in Australia uh, in Australia so we're taking a trip to Australia and New Zealand hopefully in November if everything works out
0: that would be fantastic I've never been there yeah, April was supposed to be in Italy? Italy. Yeah. She's supposed to be on I a Vespa.
2: Yeah, I, I have a Vespa. Oh, yeah, yeah she
0: is on a Vespa. Just yeah. not in Italy. <laughs> a scarf.
3: Right. now I was supposed to do a home stay to teach English for two months. Oh, I'm hoping to revisit that. It will be at wonderful. Some point. Whereabouts in Italy? It was going to be in Florence, but... um mm. Actually was it wasn't COVID is isn't the reason I didn't go. It just happened to coincide, but I'm gonna look at Spain instead.
0: It's because so she, I love she was Spain. drunk I've on been... her interview. What's that? It's because yeah, you were drunk on your interview. <laughs> no.
2: you. Yeah.
0: Anyway, it's a, it's just yeah. a joke from a, Yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, I'll a to tell you the story later. But. Previous episode.
3: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> so so we, so oh sorry, back okay, back to the story. Um, So traveling, do you, do you travel all over then normally? it sounds like you've been to Italy.
1: Like Europe is kind of my favorite spot. Um, You know, I've gotten to visit France and Italy and Germany and Austria, Ireland. So yeah, I love, uh, love, love, love Europe. I have a dear friend who lives in Sweden. She keeps trying to talk me into coming there. So maybe that'll be something that'll work out sometime.
0: Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I'd love to go to all of those places. Mm -hmm. Hopefully soon.
1: Sure. Be, so, yeah.
3: I would say that'd be a great opportunity, Yvonne, for you to uh, speak internationally. About that would, this would
1: be wonderful.
3: Overseas, would love that.
1: Yeah, I was working for a little while with a, a dental therapist in the UK. Um, they kind of have a little different model than we do here. So, if dental therapists can place um, resins. Um, so, if they kind of have like the dental surgeon who does prosthetics, crowns, bridges, extractions, oral surgery. And then the dental therapists do um, hygiene and then resins kind of like our model in Washington state. Um, but they run their own practices. They're not under the um, supervision of a dentist. Um, they usually work in like, well, up until this point, I've kind of been like a spa sort of clinic setting, although that's shifting. Um, so yeah, that would be great at some point to, to
2: take the whole conversation international as well.
0: Yes, so tell us more about your about patient fears and yeah uh, the okay I'm gonna, we'll break this off the podcast because I don't want to sound stupid but because you were talking about more of the brain um, action I'm on cold meds too I got a my nice spring cold so that's why my oh. voice is extra sexy today so yeah tell us more about the um, the brain and the
1: development and um, all that yeah super exciting stuff so. There is neurobiology behind the way your patient presents physically and psychologically, uh, your activated patient. So kind of just a quick little sort of brain anatomy. There is a small almond-shaped um, organ um, that is in the, the, near the brainstem. It's called the amygdala. It's kind of like the fire alarm of the brain. It is basically searching, scanning the environment to see if there's any potential threats. The um, amygdala of, a, of someone who's been exposed to either dental trauma or you know, like trauma in the dental suite or some other sort of complex style trauma, um, they have that amygdala is firing all the time. It is it assumes everything it sees is some potential threat. So the hippocampus, which is near that organ, has the job of um, storing memories. So based on the information that is coming into the body, the hippocampus writes a story about it's dangerous to go to the dentist. The hippocampus's job is to send information to the prefrontal cortex so that can make decisions about what to do based on what's been detected in the environment. Um, So then that's kind of in the you know the the midbrain. In the brain stem is if you remember your Cranial nerve anatomy, cranial nerve 10, is called the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is also called the wanderer because it does things like controls the swallow response, um, the, It feeds the heart, the lungs, the digestive tract, it handles a lot of other um, uh, uh, systems that run the body. The vagus nerve is a two-way nerve like most are. However, the 80% of the information transferred is from the body to the brain. 20% goes back from the brain to the body. So we have our fire alarm like amygdala going off. The hippocampus has written a story about it's dangerous to go to the dentist. When a patient comes into that dental setting, smells the um, cavity, or you know, back in the day when we used to use Eugenol, right? Your um, zinc oxide and Eugenol, that smell, or here's a drill or um, gets in the chair and sees that bright light over them. Those are all, if they've had a negative experience, either again in a dental suite or they've got an activated nervous system from something else and all of those cues are now signaling, I'm not safe. So your patient who's activated, um, Deb Dana, who's a licensed clinical social worker who took the work of Stephen Porges is the one who posited what's called the polyvagal theory, that this nerve um, has three actions. Either a person is going to have a healthy autonomic nervous system state, they can engage with you, they can have a conversation, they can make eye contact, You know, they'll face their body toward you when they're talking, they'll have good posture when you when they stand up out of the chair, they're gonna stand up straight, shoulders back, and and be able to meet you with eye contact and have a conversation with you. That's a healthy, autonomic, sympathetic nervous system state. Someone who's more activated, they're a little lower down on this ladder, they're in that parasympathetic fight-flight response. The amygdala is firing, the hippocampus is writing a story, the vagus nerve saying like this whole thing is not safe. And it's sending signals of I'm not safe to that vagus nerve who now is assigned to tell you to do something based on this signal of safety, run, flee, or fight, that fight-flight response. You may get somebody who's curt with their answers. They're snarky when they answer you. Um, So that indicates that they're more activated. Further down on the ladder is going to be somebody who... Can't make eye contact with you. Can only give you one sentence or very short sentence answers. They don't want to face their body towards you when you're when they're talking. You can't. You're like you cannot connect with them because they're in this lowest um, freeze response uh, of that autonomic ladder. And so, like I said, when a when a patient comes in, when you call their name. If they stand up. And make brief eye contact with you, and then split off. Or subconsciously, they're covering all of the organs innervated by the vagus nerve. You'll watch their shoulders come down and in because they're subconsciously protecting those organs at the vagus. Because the vagus nerve has gotten all its information. I'm not safe, and it sent information back to the body. Protect yourself. And so you'll watch their sh- every time. I'll watch their shoulders do that, or they'll look off from me because when you when When a predator looks you in the eye, what do you do? You don't stand and stare them down. You look off. So some of these early protective mechanisms that our brain and body combine together to do, you'll watch your patients do that right in the waiting room. And then when they're sitting in the chair, the same thing. So my goal, three goals when it comes to any patient, whether they're activated or not, first, to validate their experience, if it's good or bad never to shame them, make them feel bad about, it's been a long time since you've been here. Where have you been? That kind of thing. I heard somebody do this in an operatory not too long ago. So I see you've been gone for a long time. You know, what's up? And immediately that patient was like, my mom died and I've been dealing with life. So yeah, I didn't come to the dentist. So she had a that's a big T trauma. She lost a parent. She spent two years away from the dentist because she was sorting through one, you know, the probate of her mother's estate, and then, you know, her anxiety and depression over the loss of a parent. Now it's been a year. It's been 18 months. Now I'm ashamed because it's been so long since I've been in. Now she gets in the chair and someone does exactly what she's afraid is going to happen. So validate that patient. That's the first and most important goal is to validate whatever their experience is and not shame them for it. Um, get their permission before i do anything before you know i take a health history before i let them know doc has ordered x rays always getting their permission and then creating a safe space for them to be whoever they need to be in that chair within boundaries right i'm not going to allow myself to get activated or to be negatively impacted by whatever you've got going on creating that safe space for you and for me in that treatment relationship, so those are the three most important things with a patient. Validate them. Don't shame them. Get their permission for whatever it is you're going to do, and then create safe space for them. Create that rapport where they know they're safe in
2: your chair.
0: Yeah, I love it. And some yes, of the hyg-
2: nice. yeah.
0: Oh, so some of the hygienists, like you were talking about, they were shaming them for not coming in. The, do you um, feel that they're taking it personal, like? it's me. It's about me. It's all about me. It's my time. It's this, you know, they're thinking inward instead of thinking about the patient and understanding that it's about the patient and don't, um, yeah, we know you have an hour to get everything done. The patient hasn't been in for a year. You know what? You don't have to do everything. They came in the door. That's the first step. That's what I tell them. I'm like, well, you're here now let's get you back on track. It's okay. And in my mind, I'm like, if they're super dirty, that's fine. I'll do what I can today and have them come back at least they're warmed up. And they made it this far and don't make it about you.
1: And you know, it's it's not about you. Yes, that's exactly right. And Cindy, that's exactly right. You, and you know, we know when they've been gone for a long time, it's going to be a more difficult process. We're not, if we're, if we're responsible, we're not going to try to push to get everything done or a spit shine in that hour. We're going to you know, make sure they know what there's, what the situation is in a, I just had somebody uh, use this word recently. She said, this is the most validating dental experience I've ever had. Well, that good. Cause that's how it's supposed to be. So, you know, make sure they understand that I'm an advocate for them. I am not a, a rule maker for them. I'm not trying to, um, put a bunch of extra stuff on them. I want them to leave that experience knowing um, their health is important to me. Their comfort in that space is important to me. I want, you said, you know, like they came in the door. Like, how hard is it sometimes to pick up the phone and do the scary thing you don't want to do? But they did. They picked up the phone, they scheduled an appointment. Maybe, maybe they were so scared they canceled that first appointment and they rescheduled. They were brave enough to reschedule after they canceled the first time. Then, then they come in the door. Then, you know, after they check in, they don't freak out and leave. They actually come back to your operatory with you. Like they have already done the the big hard stuff. Now you get the opportunity to hold their hand and walk them through the rest, rest of what's even more scary to them, laying back in the chair, letting you look in your mouth, in their mouth and uh, hopefully not judge them by based on what
2: you see. How have the um, doctors themselves been receptive to training
3: versus like the staff?
1: Yeah, some, you know, your people, right? You know the people who get what you're talking about and you know the people who are going to resist what you're talking about. Not every person is my people, right? Um, Like I was just saying, that experience I had, he was a specialist that I gave this talk to for his local um, Seattle Study Club Club component. Um, I had subbed in his office. A day, one day. And he said to me, um, are you looking for a job? Cause like one, we need somebody, and two, you know, I like the way that you interact with patients. And I said, No, you know, and explained why. And he said, Can you can you tell me more? Cause like nobody's talking about that. And I was like, Yeah, I know. Um, so after five minutes of explaining the science of safe relationship with him, he was like, I, I need to have you back here to have a talk. First I gave a talk to his staff and then to his local component. Um, so, and on that first visit, I, I had a 45 minutes, they were on their lunch, you know, I had 45 minutes to sort of explain the bare bones of it. And that's when he made the decision. One, I need you to come back and give a, you know, a talk to my, my group. And then I want to introduce you to the guy that does this nationally. So immediately he understood it and his staff for the most part, there was one hygienist who I could tell during the course of the program, she was like a little resistant. Um, but by the end of the talk, I asked her, I was like, do you feel like, you know, this was relevant? Did you get anything good out of it? And she said, yeah, you know what? Absolutely. Yes, I did. You know? So sometimes people you, you just like with your anxious patients, if you validate them, if you make them feel safe, you know, I made it clear that I wasn't there to tell her what to do or change anything that she was doing, but to validate, you know, the great things that were already happening in her interactions with her patients and she was converted by the end of that 45 minutes. Um, so it's not for everybody. Not everybody's going to be ready to um, embrace your patient's difficulty. Not everybody that's not, everybody's not suited to that. And that's okay. Um, but those that are, you know, I, so when I got done with my talk, you know, and I made clear at the end, like, here are three things you can do. Actually, it's five, five things you can do on your next shift your next clinic day. And by the time we were done, they had to go back and see active patients. And he's like, I feel like I can use this now. You know, so the information that I'm teaching is really, really actionable. I want you to be able to use what you learn with your very next patient. Um, even if they're anxious or not, this applies to everybody. You know, we can, we can validate all of our patients, those that, you know, are have, do have great oral hygiene and are consistent with their, their visits, don't have a lot of anxiety over it. And those that do, I mean, these um, principles work, no matter who you're working with, because every human wants to feel validated, nobody wants to feel shamed, or blamed for the, you know, the situation they're in. So these principles work um, with highly activated patients or not.
0: Yeah, sometimes you can't tell, sometimes people will be so perfect, like this girl will come in, absolutely gorgeous, perfect, not an eyebrow out of place, teeth are extremely clean. But I know, I'm like, well, there has to be something wrong with her because, you know, why is she trying to be so perfect?
1: It, yeah. Like, you know, in the and past, why is she gripping like, the chair when yes. she thinks I
0: don't notice? And she is so, she needs to be validated. Nobody probably tells her that she's prettier, that her teeth are clean. They just assume she knows. So yeah. to tell her that she's doing a good job, you know, everybody needs to be validated. Like you are saying, you don't know what yeah. everybody's trauma is or what their issues are. So Isn't I like that. True? yeah and then, um, when you're talking to teams, because April and I do some consulting too and training teams, and uh, and I've been you know we've both we've all been there too, where you have a consultant come in or a trainer, and you kind of get defensive at first, like, oh, somebody's gonna you know know more than I do, whatever, of course somebody's going to, but and so it's kind of natural for some people to not want to hear or learn. I mean, I, I love to, but not everybody's at that stage. And so, like you're saying, treat them like that patient that. That needs to be validated. I like that because that's mm-hmm. very common. You have to win them over as well because they all right away they have their hand up before you even have a chance to speak. Right?
1: Yeah, even before I go into an office, I send a little basically like a little survey that helps me understand you know what kind of experience do each of your team members have, um, you know what what do they wish they knew about anxious patients? you know tell me about an experience that you've had with one recently you know so i try to gauge where each and i'm hoping when i send that survey almost always everybody because i keep it short it's like eight questions so you can get it done you know if your experience is pretty um short you can get it done in less than 10 minutes um so i'm trying to gather information before i go into that office to determine like where is the staff at what do they need um what do they wish they had um you know what are some of the challenges with dealing with anxious patients typically it's like it takes a long time like it takes a lot to work through all the difficulties those anxious patients have and so that's why it's so important to, to me before i'm done with a presentation i want you to have simple things that you can teach your patients in a, in a minute or or less that's going to deactivate their nervous system response
2: you know this have you seen any, um, how this, these techniques have actually worked for the staff members themselves?
1: We like, talk about in, that. You know? yeah. yeah, we do talk about that. It's actually, that's a really important key because we have to stay grounded when our patients aren't right. And so I spend a, you know, a decent amount of time in each presentation talking about what kinds of things can you do to stay grounded when your patient's not grounded. Um, and then how does that impact your inner office relationships? Because we're humans too, like we're coming with our difficulties. We may be dealing with a sick child or difficulty in our marriage or financial issues, right? All of those things activate us too. And sometimes your stuff may crash into my stuff. And so we now have to figure out how not to escalate You know, our each of our own activated
2: nervous systems. It sounds like it's a all around good, well-rounded training for everybody.
1: That's my goal, you know, because I want, I love what I do. I want to keep doing what I do as long as I can keep doing what I do. And if people want to stay in it, but this is the thing that makes it hard. Let's solve that. Let's figure out how to solve that. So you can keep on loving what you do and keep doing what you love to do.
0: Yes, yeah, so we don't all have to run from hygiene or from dentistry. That's what everybody's running. It's like, no, you don't have to. let's make it better. Let's fix things and let's make it better. you know that's kind of silly. Yeah, I mean, we'll even though I some- do
1: this training, I don't really have the desire to leave the op. like I may work less um, you know because there's only so many places you can be right right But I don't want to leave the op. Like I've been doing this. I want to do this till til I stop working. You know, some people, you know, like you say it, you hear all the time: escape the op, or get out of the op, or you know, get out of the box. It's like, yeah, I like my op. I don't so, really yeah. want to leave my op.
0: Do you get divorced every time? I mean, you know, every time, like you got to work things out. It's just like it's a relationship, right? Right. Yeah. And if it, and it is bad, if it is bad, yeah, good divorce, leave that office doesn't mean you have right. to leave your career. And and if you want to, that's great too. But And April's worked in endo for quite a few years in the past. So she's probably seen a lot of patients that have these issues because there's some reason that they get to that point. And then. Oh yeah. Especially. Uh, people have a fear of root canals.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Cause root canals, we all know have a bad reputation. And uh, of course the endodontist I work for. It was painless. And a lot of the patients are like, I felt nothing. I don't know what people were talking about. Why is it a bad reputation? And we explain well, it's, it's the pain beforehand that people associate it with. Or a, a root canal that went bad, unfortunately, but in the past. But yeah, it, it's, it was interesting. Or even like the rubber dam, people feeling encroached upon, claustrophobic. Mm hmm. I mean, there's extreme cases where we had to put them under anesthesia um, conscious sedation to get the work done.
1: Yeah.
3: There's some sort of trigger for them that really upset
1: them. And sometimes we don't know. It may have been something that we did or said or they heard or felt. We have no idea what it is, but you know, once we're in that situation, we've got to figure out how to de-escalate it so that they can stay safe and we can stay safe too. Right. So what are some of the um, tricks that you have or that you teach to help these patients? Is just gauging where a patient's at. If they can't make eye contact, don't force them, right? Oftentimes, you know, when I'm doing that initial interview with a patient, when they first come into my operatory, I'm trying to figure out like, you know, what are their concerns? Um, Gathering more information about those concerns, then talking about the health history. Like if you can't look at me, I'm not going to force you to look at me you know i'm going to i'm going to sit you know knee to knee with you but not necessarily stare you down right um the the trigeminal nerve which is the 5th cranial nerve has receptors for facial expression and tone of voice so if my facial expression and my tone of voice feel safe to you it's going to be easier for you to open up and answer questions and engage. We're going to be able to move you up on that autonomic nervous system ladder because my voice and my face, even a neutral face in someone who is activated, feels like a threat. So you don't have to have a grumpy face. You can just have a neutral face. If they have a face, you can't, you have a face, facial expression they can't read, it can be perceived as a threat. So making sure you have you know, a facial expression that looks warm and inviting, and that your tone of voice, you know, how like someone says something nice, but you can hear the snark under it. Your, your trigeminal nerve is responsible for you being able to tell the difference. They might have a nice face, they may have said nice words, but that trigeminal nerve picked up that was not a nice tone of voice. Yeah, it's that, bo- not body language, but that
0: intuition or just. Nonverbal communication.
1: Nonverbal communication. Your trigeminal nerve has receptors to distinguish is that a safe tone of voice? Is that a safe facial expression or not? And it takes less than a tenth of a second for that nerve to tell your brain, nope, not safe, or yes, it's safe. Makes me think of autism too. I don't know
0: too much about it, but I I know that there's a lot with that, not understanding the undertones and things like that. I wonder if there's a connection there with the nerve.
1: Maybe
0: Um, and then also what about the people use the the, um, personality profiles a lot like the DISC one, and so we were trained to, oh that's a Type A or you know that's a D or an I, but and it could be for sure with the personalities, but it might be that if somebody's talking a lot and doesn't necessarily mean that they're um, an I, it could mean that they're scared to death to come into the dentist and you know and. And so you have to kind of be aware of these things too. That might be where intuition comes in as well. Yes. They might not want to share photos just because you think
1: they're an eye. They want you to just be quiet and, you know. Yeah. So your fifth cranial nerve and your 10th cranial nerve are doing the same thing that your patients are. And so if you get a hit like that, pay attention to it and adjust accordingly.
0: I was going to say like also when you're speaking, um, because I'm used to doing presentations in front of people and, you get, you get the feedback or the body language or the communication. And so it's great, you know, where they're at. And then you do it over zoom or you're doing a webinar and it's so different. You think it'd be easier to do it over the computer, but it's not because no. you have no energy or no feedback. You don't know.
1: Yeah. The, Cause what we're what wired to connect to. like that. Yeah. That's, That's part of our nervous system wiring. When you can't see someone's facial expression, you cannot hear their tone of voice that that connection is lacking.
0: Yeah, or if you put comics in your show, you know, in, in a real presentation, you hear laughter, but then if you do it over the computer, it's just silent, so it's just awkward, and I just, like, I just take them out at that point, because you don't know what's going on. Yeah. Yep. April's laughing. You're the
3: comedian, Cindy.
0: No. Well, oh. <laughs> people say comed- so with kids, mm-hmm. I wonder if that's why kids have no fear, because they don't have a history of being traumatized yet. And so they run around and they don't fear anything because they've never experienced it. There's no warning sign.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They have no stories written on their hippocampus. You know, they they don't have a story that says if you jump off of uh you know the stairs from the top, you're gonna get hurt at the bottom, right? they are just like, wow, I can do it. Because they have no story. You know, so they're that hip that amygdala is not firing, not sending any signals. Because there's no story written on the hippocampus yet about what happens when you jump from the top of the steps.
0: Yeah, so they need to jump so they can learn, right? <laughs> so like the like, yeah, I
1: know that's a good life lesson. You got
0: to jump so you can learn. <laughs> yeah,
3: that brings up. I was thinking about pedo. You, you can't tell parents what to do. But, you know, you hear about kids are fearful of the dentist because their parents are like talking about needles or it's going to hurt, et cetera, et cetera. So they already implant that in the brain. So the kids are already fearful. I mean, how
1: can we stop parents from doing that? So So uh, part of the other the other arm that I'm now working on is actually working with patients. Um, so they have the tools they need to stay grounded when they come into our offices. So you know, they maybe have had a negative experience. They already have a story, right? And when you, when you, you know, you subconsciously, you're not trying to scare your kid, you know, but your story, you're writing your story on their memory maker. Um, And so teaching adults how, what is happening to them in that um, activated state and giving them the tools to manage that state and co-regulating with them while they're in that state now they can teach their kids those skills i just had a five-year-old not too long ago he came with his mom and i called his name and his mom stood up in the chair and he stood up in the chair and then as soon as he made eye contact with me he hid behind his mom and grabbed her leg. and so i said said his name and i said is it okay with you if mom comes back with us today And he looked at his mom and she nodded and he looked at me and I nodded. And he's like, yeah. So of course I was going to have mom back there. You know, it was, I wasn't in a, wasn't in a pedo practice. It was a general practice. And so that's what he needed to feel safe. And so I just made it okay by asking his permission to get, get his permission for mom to come back. And so, yes, mom can come back. And he sat in the chair and he said, my tummy doesn't feel good. And I was like, "Buddy, good job. You described to me what's happening in your tummy. When I get a signal like that, it just means I need extra help." Now that's his vagus nerve, right? When you do something scary, what happens? You get that knot in your stomach. And so he was being—he able was able to say what was happening somatically, but use his words. He was—I don't think he was quite five yet. I think he was four. So he described what was happening in his body. He's still connected to his body. He doesn't have all the stories written yet. We get nervous about something and we ruminate on it. And we ignore what's happening in our body. That's backwards. He paid attention to what was happening in his body and verbalized it. And so I was like, good job explaining to me what's, how you feel about being in the chair. When I get that feeling in my stomach, that just means I, I need to ask for extra help. I need someone to help me. And it's okay to ask for help. And so like, I didn't shame him for having this feeling in his tummy. I validated that's what's supposed to happen when you're scared. And when you, when you get that feeling in your, I didn't use the word scared. When you get that feeling in your tummy, ask for help. That's okay. I'm here to help. And mom's here to help too. And so I also praised mom. I was like, I don't know what you've taught him, but at this little bitty bit of an age, he can describe what's happening So you created safe space for him as well to say how he feels rather than be a big boy, you know, don't be a baby. She had taught him to explain what's happening. And so I validated him and validated her for his being able to do that at such a young age. And, you know, when she left, she was like, my, I didn't know how it was going to go today. I don't think it was his first visit may have been. now i can't remember she like, like it's i hard know to how tell yeah they yeah. could have a good he day because he'd come before and had a hard time so i was like she was like i didn't know how it was going to go today it didn't go very well last time and you know i i'm so grateful and i was like you know i'm just here to you know make sure he feels okay with coming if today wouldn't have worked out we would have tried another day but because we validated him we got his permission right we asked if mom could come back And everything we did, I, and that's another thing too, like the fear of the unknown with your patients escalates, elevates that, um, response. And so the tell show do is the way to help deactivate the autonomic nervous system response. Tell them what you're going to do, show them how you're going to do it. And, you know, then do it, don't do it and not explain what's happening. That fear of the unknown really can set a patient off. And so, you know, when you're getting ready to do your intraoral exam, okay, so we're going to do a soft tissue screening today, you're going to feel me check your lips, cheeks, tongue, we're going to take a look at the roof of your mouth, the floor of your mouth, and the back of your throat. So it's it's describing all of that before you do it, takes away the fear of the unknown, you're getting their permission by explaining what's going to happen. And then you do what you're going to do. And, you know, that, that helps them not feel um, like they don't have any control. As soon as you take away a patient's sense of control or they feel disrespected in that situation, um, you know, you're kind of setting yourself up to have difficulty with them.
0: Sometimes with kids, if they tell me that like they're nervous or scared, I, I say, Oh, you're excited. Or they're so they're or tell me whatever. I'm like, Oh, you're just excited. Is that wrong to do that? Cause I don't want to confuse their there's yeah they so should be typically, scared, but... I would
1: just yeah I wouldn't try to translate into something else Uh uh-huh. um because now they've got a confused story written on the hippocampus like she said I'm excited but I didn't feel excited I actually felt scared
0: yeah because with kids it's so hard because you're programming them so I'm really you really got to be careful what you tell them mm-hmm. and then sometimes parents, lots of times parents will come back with them and I'll mm-hmm. ask the child like do you want bubble gum today or cherry and the kid will ask her mom which one do I want or the mom will say, you like cherry, don't you? I'm like, well, let the kid answer. Like how yeah. do you know, they just answer for the child. They don't validate the child's own decision, whether they like cherry or
1: bubblegum. Right. Like, like seriously. Yeah. So, no, you know, or... we don't necessarily want to like go against a parent, but any way that we can connect with them, you know, without, you know, necessarily having that intermediary, like you said, let the kid make their own decisions. You know, and some kids will be ready for that and they'll do it and some kids aren't. And that'll just be a matter of just, you know, uh, creating disconfirming experiences with your patients. When they come into the treatment suite, they've got a story written already. They're looking for ways to prove the stories right. And so everything we do is an attempt to help them write a new story. So we don't want to confirm going to the dentist is dangerous. We want to disconfirm that experience by showing them we're going to keep them safe. So that's another major goal I have with patients that are activated. You know, it's all those first three things that you talked about, that's for everybody, but for your activated patient who's, who's got difficulty with coming, my next goal is for every interaction that I have with them is to provide disconfirming experiences, to help them write a new story. That the dentist is a safe place.
3: Well, Yvonne, you've been in wealth of information today. Is things I don't even never even thought about or have thought about and never got a thorough explanation on it. So that's great. So thank you. Thank
1: you. And you know, like like Cindy said earlier, a lot of this stuff is intuitive. We don't we we do it. We don't know why we do it. Um, but now neuroscience explains exactly why we do what we do either as someone who's, you know, having a difficulty with a certain situation or someone who's trying to regulate with that patient while they get through it. So you may not have had the word, I didn't used to have the words for it, right? I didn't used to have, uh, have the understanding of what was happening neurobiologically with a patient. But now that I do, you know, we can apply all of these principles and techniques to help our patients get through these difficult situations.
0: And so how can we find out, how can we find you? Or how can our listeners find you or find out about your trainings and courses?
1: That's an excellent question. So we are launching a brand new website. It should be up and running in the next few days. It's we risewellness.com. So W-E-R-I-S-E-W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S.com. So when that's up and running, we're going to have actually you'll be able to download uh, a tip sheet, 10 tips to stay grounded when your patient is not uh, right from the homepage there. So um, my eventual goal is to create a certification program for dental practices who want to be trauma-informed. And then, you know, the next step will be to work directly uh, with patients, building that patient audience who's interested. Um, That's coming in the off thing, but right now it's wellness.com and you can download that. 10 tips to stay grounded when your patient is not.
0: I love it. And we'll post all the information in our show notes too. And also on our website. So you can find um, Yvonne there. And hopefully we'll see her in Portland too for our big inaugural event. April's giving me oh, speech. I love in that. Inaugural, yes. Inaugural. Yes. <laughs> That'd be great. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Thank Yvonne. you so much.
1: Well, nice to meet you, April. Nice to meet you too. Okay, bye. Bye. bye.